<laughs> You're listening to the one of us.net podcast network. One of us is a podcast and video network funded all but entirely by donations and subscriptions. We do accept pitches for audio based or banner ads, but on a case by case basis. If you're interested in that, contact us at oneofusnet at gmail.com. With the amount of audio and video content we generate, it is expensive and extremely time-consuming to keep things running. Please go to the webpage oneofus.net and sign up for a subscription at $2, $5, 10 or $25 and get a ton of bonus content. One of Us needs and appreciates all your support. Master Chris, and I'm here to say we got a lot of movies to review today. I'm on the mic with my friend Aaron. What you got, Aaron? Tell us all about it, son. Yo. <laughs> okay, like I, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. Like coming into this, I, I I was not ready. I knew you were gonna do some things, but you, you little bastard, you had even told me you weren't gonna do any kind of unscripted thing. I wasn't. I mean, you're just like, no, no, no. Here's a freestyle rap. Let me throw it at you, like I, I wa- opening moment. I wasn't gonna do anything, and then you said you're not gonna do anything, right? And I was like, oh, now I have to do something. <laughs> I, I'm kind of impressed though. Like, did, did you actually prep that ahead of time, or did you pull that out of your ass? No, I pulled. You just had a real dean from community moment. <laughs> Great. Not exactly what I was going for, but okay. <laughs> DJ Dean. <laughs> uh, no, that was pulled. Hey, hey, hey. He, he he was good at rap. He was good at rap. That was the favorite ending moment of the whole series. That was pulled out of my ass, as it were. <laughs> I, I I I often think that if I hadn't become a podcaster, maybe I would have been a freestyle rap. No, I wouldn't have been. I'm sorry. And that's 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 not true. But you know, we were watching the documentary for Freestyle Love Supreme tonight, which is uh, uh Lin Manuel Miranda's freestyle rap improv group, and they're all yeah. huge nerds. Like, n- not a one of them is like. Like, you look like you were, like, a cool gangster type. No, they're just, like, he's rapping with, like, a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles hoodie on, you know? You're like, okay. Like, I, let's not rule me out entirely as uh, having had the alternate universe freestyle rap career, because, you know, I'm just saying. Anyway. You would be the great white hype. I would indeed. I don't know if I'd want to go by that. So that's Aaron. I'm Chris. We're here to review movies. That's what we do. We've got stacks of Blu-rays and 4Ks and what have you to talk about this week. So let's get into it. Please use the images of these things we're talking about on the page. Click those things. They'll bring you to the Amazon page where you can buy those. If you buy those or if you buy anything as long as you on Amazon, as long as you start from one of our links, we get a kickback to the site. And boy, we appreciate that because this site cannot keep going without money <laughs> and money <laughs> is good it's expensive to Fancy put this on that you know we need money to live indeed yeah. and it's time Food consuming it's a full-time job for yours truly i mean it really is the enormous amount of output we put out it's a lot of work so all i'm asking guys is like give us enough money through clicking on those links to becoming a subscriber and getting bonus content as part of that deal as well. So that we can a pay for all the expensive amount of bandwidth and stuff that this, that costs period for the site to go and b just help me pay my rent and bills so I can afford to have the time to even do this. And like I said, that's pretty much eight to 12 hours a day. Anyway, 
let's stop making you feel guilty and make you feel some love with some movie and TV descriptions. We're going to start off with TV with a second season of Castle Rock. That is Hulu's weird, mushed up Stephen King quasi anthology series. You seem like I was just going to say, I didn't realize what this was going into it whatsoever. Like it took me half the season to even realize what I was really watching. Well, the first season is very different from this in a lot of ways. Uh, we reviewed it on the site before twice, even really. And I was not crazy about it. Strong start. But then it just turned into nonsense by the end. I was like, I don't even know what happened in the last couple episodes of the last season. It was a mess and it didn't really work. So I was a little tentative about season two, but fortunately season two is significantly better and easier to understand. The plot this time around is uh, Annie Wilkes. That's Annie Wilkes from uh, Misery, played by Lizzie Kaplan. So she's much younger here. She's traveling with her daughter, Joy, played by Elsie Fisher. They got stranded in Castle Rock after they get in a car accident and they stay in a hotel owned by Ace Merrill, played here by Paul Sparks for you people who want to know the tie-ins that's the character Kiefer Sutherland played in stand by me. So he's kind of a dick. We've got that much clear. Oh. Yep. Uh, he has problems with his uncle pop played by Tim Robbins, who of course famously has already been in a Stephen King thing, the Shawshank redemption. In fact, they, he visits <laughs> Shawshank at one part of the show, which kind of gave me the chills. Um, but he, uh, that character appeared in the novella The Sundog in the Four Past Minute collect, Midnight Collection. Um, so he raised Ace and Ace's brother Chris, played by Matthew Allen, as well as two adopted Somalian orphan refugees, Abdi, played by Barkhad Abdi, and Nadia, played by Yusra Warsama. So Ace owns a mall property, and he's kind of mad at his adopted brother Abdi because Abdi started his own development company and Ace is losing tenants to his new development, which is building up better deals, better location in the nearby town of Salem's lot. Right. My one disappointment is I'm like, and even the show kind of jokes about it at one point. It's like, there ain't no vampires this season. They even like joke. They they, they make an offhand reference. That's sort of metatextual of like, no, there's no vampires. Sorry. Well, like that was the leap I had to make was realizing that this wasn't going to be the the Avengers for Stephen King stuff. And it was more like, here's an original Stephen King story that happens to take place in the same universe, not written by Stephen King. It's like a parallel universe. I mean, honestly, Stephen King has done for his books and and the adaptions of his books, the same thing Marvel has done for their all their shows. And he's like, okay, this is Earth Prime. This is Earth this. This is Earth this. And then he has the one character that sort of travels between universes, Roland Flagg, the Dark Man. Right? That's kind of his deal is yeah. that he... I mean, if you go to the Stephen like King Randall wiki... Flagg. They, Randall Flagg. Randall Flagg, sorry. You have the whole... They have the whole list of like every where what every universe is and what books and stories and TV shows and movies took place in that universe. And you're like, wow, that's way more organized than I would be. Anyway. So Annie, Annie Wilkes takes a job as a nurse at the local hospital part-time where Nadja is a doctor. Annie has mad hallucinations and has some violence in her past. And she realizes she needs a medication specifically to deal with it, or it's going to happen again. Uh, when she is breaking into Nadia's house to, steal a key to the medicine cabinet in question in the hospital. She encounters Ace who is firebombing uh, or her daughter encounters Ace who is fire firebombing Nadja's house because he has problems with her brother. Anyway, it gets very complicated. The upshot is, is that Annie 
catches Ace threatening Joy and she murderizes him. So Ace is dead right off the bat, like literally first episode of the show. She goes to get rid of his body and where Abdi's future mall is and finds crashes through the ground into a whole area filled with culty looking stuff. And it's filled with coffins and, and a secret passage. Not vampires. Not vampires. And, it, <laughs> and a secret passage which leads out to the abandoned Marston house, which if you're doing your homework, you know, is the central house of evil in Salem's lot, as well as in the short story, Jerusalem's lot, which this has a lot more to do with. Uh, Ace comes back from the dead and starts recruiting other townspeople by murdering them and then re resurrecting them as sort of cult zombies for this group, because everything ties back to this person. The cultists are looking for the caged man in Shawshank prison who, isn't there anymore well if you watch season one you know who that is and that briefly comes into this in this one in they're sort of like yes yes they are tied together but it's fortunate that this thing manages to stand alone enough that you don't have to have watched the first season well the, they set up the mechanic for the anthology aspect of it even going forward with going yeah the actual lake in castle rock is a dimensional gate of sorts and even though they don't really like play with that beyond someone kind of coming to that conclusion there's your setup so that every season they have the ability to go just forget everything you've seen this is an entirely new dimension it's just also castle rock a different castle rock yeah no i mean and i think it's the same town inside of the show though I don't think it's supposed yeah. to be like a different dimension. I mean, we don't know. It's only the second season and they have yeah. confirmed yeah. as of like, I think a day or two ago that there is going to be a third season for sure. It was on the, it was a little bit on the ropes because the reviews for the first season were mixed and the numbers were dropped off real fast. And the second season had trouble finding an audience at first because of it. But I think enough people have since gone, Oh, well, this actually is much better that uh, they're back up there again. I I'd be very curious to see a third season. I hope they're not doing a, every season is set in another parallel version of the town and are eventually sort of doing that gradual tie up. But this is JJ Abrams. He's executive producer. I don't, you know, obviously a lot of people are still mad about lost. Although I think it towards the end that Abrams had no input on that show at all. Oh, I think, I think Abrams left that show in season two. Yeah, no, I, everything after that was somebody else. I think Abrams is a TV show starter, and then he yeah. he hires his managers and he takes off. He's like a franchiser. <laughs> well, and like, so I I didn't see the first season at all because everyone I knew told me it was either boring or bad, and so I purposely skipped it. And when he handed this to me, I was a little reticent. Like I said, I I, I really expected this to be something different, and. It took me like three or four episodes to get into this. And by the, it was about the time that you really delve into Annie Wilkes's past that I got really involved in all the characters. And I haven't seen many shows that do such a good job of ratcheting up the tension in the way that King actually does. Like he does such a great job of making you feel for the characters and understand even the horrible, vile people who he follows to a point where when they get hurt and they do, you feel it. And like 
this show has me hooked. I'm ready for season three. I, I hope it does what this one does. The, the only thing that really bothered me was just there's there's a lots of kind of child abuse in this. Yeah. Not like somebody beating the crap out of a kid, but like I think I messaged you even. I was like, I'm three minutes into the first episode and I've already uttered my first what the fuck. <laughs> and, and like, so like, it, it was definitely a challenge for a show where like Annie Wilkes, who is a murderous sociopathic person who later on in life is going to tie a writer down and hobble him until he writes the romantic ending she needs and go, there's your main character, your protagonist. Now let's follow her and watch her try to save the world. You know, I do. I, and so, I do like though, that it's not one of those prequels that spends all its time going and here's all the pieces you need to see how she became this person. She was already that person at the beginning of this season who could have done yeah. that there's tiny details that have to do with the stuff that she got from her daughter in fact there was a fan theory halfway through this season that it was actually her daughter who would assume her name and become the andy wilkes from misery not her because so many more of the ticks associated with andy were her daughters but towards the end you understand why she would actually have those that taken on those ticks as well uh, this is soup gets super super dark no question like most yeah. of the characters die and don't die well it is it, you know i mean some stephen king is actually you know despite its darkness and having some characters die is overall you know rewarding like yay good wins evil doesn't triumph some of it like say revival if you've read that is not <laughs> where you're like oh shit that was dark as fuck this falls under the dark as fuck yeah yeah this is the dark as fuck definitely <laughs> <laughs> well let's move on to something else dark as fuck and that is a horror movie not set in the stephen king universe called uh belzebuth Still not oh my God. sure about the title of this. Is this is this just like a a the a Mexican Catholic way of saying Beelzebub? I'm not sure. Uh, I don't know. I like I don't know how to pronounce the title. And the movie itself is interesting because it seems like it's a Spanish American co production. Mm -hmm. It's very much a Spanish film. Uh, it takes place in Mexico, I believe, unless I'm just terribly wrong. And like most of the characters are Hispanic. There's a couple of. Uh, white guys tobin bell comes in who kind of picks up the main plot but th this movie was another one where like 30 seconds in i was freaking <laughs> out because uh as the theme of this episode as you will find out may or may not be kid death um this movie opens uh with the main character having a baby he's a cop his wife works hard they're they've had a rough pregnancy and in the opening moments of the movie, a nurse goes crazy and kills a lot of babies, which is, it, it's a tough opening to get through. I, I was and, like, yay! <laughs> Not because and, I was happy and, about babies dying, because I couldn't wait to hear what your response was. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it follows that father, or that, uh, unfortunately, uh, uh, the not father, as he kind of tries to move on with his life, and before long kids start dying in mass quantities and people just suddenly go crazy 
and do really horrific things to kill a lot of children. And it's this perplexing moment where the, the cops think that either someone's trying to like be a, bring up a Satanistic cult or they're sneaking drugs into the water supply or maybe this is the cartels doing stuff. Well, then the church shows up and we find out, no, in fact, what is happening is uh, the not the Antichrist, but like the Messiah is being born and the devil is trying to stop it. Yeah. And it starts as this horror film where they're going, oh my God, these events keep happening. What do we do? How do we stop it? And the movie quickly starts to shift into a little bit horror and more like seven, like a really dark police procedural where they're trying to protect the future Messiah from the devil, basically. I would, and I would straight up call seven a unforgiving horror film with police procedural it, it, aspects, and I would call true, this that enough. too. <laughs> fair enough. It, it just it becomes a it shifts and becomes a lot more about the grotesquerie and a lot more about uh, actually saving things and doing good, but. The good thing about the movie, though, is that when that happens, when it becomes less about kid death, I think that's when the story starts to take off and the characters start making some interesting decisions. And I I ended up actually really liking where this movie went by the end, even though it was a journey that I don't know that I'll take too many times. Yeah, it's a long journey. It's two hours. So that's quite a long time for this type of movie. And there are no spaces of light in this film. This is yeah. grim as fuck consistently through the whole thing. And it is brutal. Like the kills are brutal. The people be who are being killed, it's brutal. That introduce you to a character. You like that character? Don't. Because they're going to oh. die brutally. And and everybody betrays everybody. And you never know who's good or bad or possessed. There's, there is a possession, possession scene in this that flat out floored me. Because I was not expecting that character to have the turn. It just completely missed it yeah and so yeah and i think it's solid performances um as much as i can i can tell it's weird because the guy who's playing the lead actor here joaquin cozio is best known for playing you know sort of big dumb thugs or monsters and he gets his chance to be a little monster at one point but ultimately he's the protagonist really here it's kind of an odd casting for that character, but he makes it work. And I think that this movie overall is a really good horror movie that is not going to be to a lot of people's tastes because of how yeah. incredibly brutal it really is. But if that's the sort of horror movie you like, then this is going to run right up your alley because it isn't, it doesn't, I never went, well, that's just silly. No, you're, you know, it's, <laughs> it's good. It's just hard to watch. It's, it's like, uh, watching a Darren Aronofsky movie. Yes, that would be, I, I would put that there too. Now, unfortunately, there are no extras here. It's only on DVD. In fact, I'm a little confused. Why does anyone even bother putting something out just a DVD these days with all the streaming? And this is on Shudder. So it's like, well, you know, why bother? That's when it happens. Whenever Shudder or Netflix or Hulu or HBO, not less HBO, whenever any of the major streaming networks put their stuff out on disc, they never put a lot of special features on it, which... I never get it because we can all watch the movie if we have that streaming service. What we want are the cool how-tos. What did they do and how did they design the effects? Uh, like These are the movies and the shows that I want to know that about. Well, moving on, our next film 
although it does have some pretty bleak aspects to it, is not a horror film. It is a superhero film, but not one you've ever heard of, most likely. This one comes from Indonesia. This would be one of the first big Indonesian superhero films ever made, if not the first. It's based on a relatively long-running comic book series in there. It's called Gundala, and it's directed and written by Indonesian film superstar Joko Anwar. And I'm not being ironic or sarcastic or anything. I mean, Anwar has turned into a real superstar of Indonesian film, having done so many different types of genres of films and making a lot of money even overseas with some of them. Uh, Most recently here, I knew him for doing 2017's wonderful Satan Slaves. I know, with a title like that, how could it not be wonderful? But it is. It's like an Indonesian conjuring. And uh, the very recently released Impetigor that he made in 2019, which is a great folk horror. So it's like, okay, well, he does other genres. Let's see how he does with Gandala. And sure enough, he brought along his superstar actress, Tara Basra who is just there's so, she's one of those people who's got a je ne sais quoi but in a different she's like not an it girl it's not you're just like there's something about her that's mysterious and she is a great actress and it's so nice to see she's in this one as well but the biggest problem here is that this is a pretty long fucking movie it's over two hours and it's not till like the last half of the last act that the dude actually becomes a superhero yeah it, and it it doesn't need to be either. Like the movie begins when he's a child and they take, I, I actually counted it. They take 23 minutes before he becomes a grown up in what could have been done in six minutes. Yeah. And like the movie is just also somehow maybe nearly as bleak as Beelzebub. <laughs> like uh, I was joking to my wife that his superhero name should actually be bleak lightning. But, um, yeah, like it's a good movie. It feels more like a martial art, an Indonesian martial arts movie than it actually does feels like a superhero movie because the way he shoots the fights, he pulls the camera back a lot more. There's a lot more really violent, intense raid esque, um, although not as impressive action sequences where you know you feel the hit every time someone gets thrown through a wall. Uh, and the humor is a lot more toned down than you expect. So while I actually ended up really enjoying the story for the most part, this is definitely something don't go in expecting Marvel go in expecting something more akin to the raid or uh the violent one that went on netflix whose title i'm blanking on just you know he has superpowers Uh, for the record the star who plays gundala or sankaka her real his real name is abimana aris sataya i think i'm saying that right and he was in a lot of films himself he's actually the um one of the biggest Indonesian film stars. And he was actually in uh, The Night Comes For Us. He plays one of the main characters in that, which was a major action film by uh, Timo Tijanto. Terrific movie. Did that the same year he did a really great, really dark horror film that he also stars in called May the Devil Take You. So uh, Indonesian film is turning into a really fascinating hotbed of talent right now. And I don't think this is going to be one of the examples of a thing that we're all going to point to and go, this is one of the good ones because it's not. But there's a lot of fascinating things happening here. No, this is for those people who really like the kinds of movies we're talking about, but want a little bit of fantasy in it. If that's your cup of tea, I think you'll get some enjoyment out of it. it you know, it, it's not the best, but it's 
it's a B movie of this genre, the, but there's still a lot to appreciate. The shame is it should have been, I mean, it would have been so easy to edit 30 minutes out of this thing and it, oh, it would have made it, it would have been so tight and so much more watchable. Yeah. And as it is, it just drags. And that that's really yeah, unfortunate because there's more than enough good stuff here for this. And, you know, admittedly some question, questionable CG moments, but you know, it's in well, Indonesian tri- film trying to imitate Hollywood blockbuster superhero movies. There's only so much you can do. They also, they, they try to tackle humor a few times. There's some pratfalls mm-hmm. and it doesn't work. No. Like there was a sequence where somebody gets blown back and it's supposed to be a funny moment, but the stunt is so intense that I was like, holy shit, that guy just died. And I spent the next 15 minutes waiting for him to appear on character because I was like, why are they not acknowledging the fact that a, a character just died right there for no reason. It was like, oh, no, he's fine. It's just that that was a bad joke. And there's a plot line involving his mother that kind of it becomes sort of a through line that's a part of the beginning and it gets dropped for a while then comes back again somewhat towards the end. And it just feels like sequel setup. And it feels like either that should have been part of the origin story or they should have just moved it on with it and left it just as part of the setup in the beginning. Well, this is coming from Wellgo, who lately has been putting, uh, been getting some really interesting titles of late, and they've been lately making an effort to try and at least get some bonus features. And they, sure enough, they did here. There's about twenty some odd minutes of behind the scenes, candid footage, and production vlogs, uh, along with two different trailers. So, I mean, that's kind of cool that you do have those bonus features. You're not going to see if you catch this on streaming. I, I do think this is totally worth owning. I think that the star of this film is going to be in it. Like, like the two main stars, the, the uh, lead actor and the love interest are both going to be even huger and bigger names. I keep seeing them Agreed. appearing in other stuff as well. Like they're both worth following. So although not going to be one of their heightened moments and they do plan on this being the first film in a, uh, They've described it as a Marvel Universe-like universe for their superheroes, because there's a whole bunch of comic books that all tie together in Indonesia, and they want to build all of those into a big shared universe of superhero movies. We'll see, guys. You know what? Actually, I hope it works. I would love to see a shared universe that has a distinctly different feel from the American comic book movie. Mm. Um, but I do roll my eyes every time someone says that after one movie. I'm like, you know, put out like three and then tell me that yeah. and I'll buy it. Yeah. But when you tell me after number one, I'm going to assume you're going to fail. Yeah. Like the, the bloodshot <gasps> with Vin Diesel. I was like, stop. You, you've done this like yeah. three times now where you come out like, yes, it's the beginning of a big series with all these characters. No, it's, it, it's not. Shh, shh, <laughs> just make another fast just and make a good movie, movie man. <laughs> Uh, sorry that's a terrible thing to say but so far it's proven to be true anyway let's move on to our next one which also is a superhero film also is an obscure superhero film although this one dates back to the year 2000 one of the very few known and (coughs) talked about superhero movies that I have never managed to track down a copy of before now. I was always like, man, someday I'm going to get to see the specials. I mean, it's written by James Gunn, for God's sakes. So I'm like, who went on to do the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, two of the biggest superhero movies of all time. Like, I really want to see this at some point, and it's got a wacky cast. Well, here's the thing. Director Craig Mazin, before he directed 
Chernobyl for HBO, believe it or not. This is the same guy who made that fucking what? masterpiece. Yeah. I did not draw that connection. Why would you? <laughs> he directed two features and two features only. First, he directed this, the specials. And many years later, he directed superhero movie that the very Friedberg and Seltzer-ish superhero oh, satire. That. It's not good. With the dragonfly. Yes. That was the hero. Uh, now, <laughs> He at Friedberg and Seltzer were not on that one. So, you know, I don't want to say that was a Friedberg and Seltzer movie, but the fact is he did, in fact, co-write the last two scary movie films with them. So I'm going to just throw him under the bus anyway on that because it is fucking terrible. Um, it's just not quite as bad as, say, Disaster Movie or something like that. <coughs> Falls exact same formula. Anyways, the specials. Exactly. Well, the specials is also a superhero satire, but of a very different kind. Is it better? I Oh, so the specials on its own, if you remove it from history, I, I don't think it's really that good of a movie. Um, it, it is very much a product of its time. This is that end of the 90s, beginning of the 2000s, when everything was snarky and a little bit pretentious and asshole-ish. And it was cool to be a dick. And so a lot of the superhero humor, because we hadn't really had the Marvel franchise start to take over, had this kind of like, you know, snarky asshole feel to it. Yeah. And that's what this movie is. Now, so that that's the movie. However, like from a historical point of view, like this movie launched James Gunn's career. Like he flat out talks about the fact that he wrote this script. And even before this movie got made, all of his initial work in Hollywood, his start was from this unproduced script. Yeah. And he, he well, like, we kind of sit there and we, we poo-poo Craig Mazin a little bit, even though he did make Chernobyl. Uh, it was uh, James Gunn and Craig Mazin. And then Jamie Kennedy, like, were three friends who got together to make this movie. If you go through and listen to the commentary on this, it is James Gunn giving zero fucks because... <laughs> You know, it's been 20 years since this has happened and everyone is either done or has a great career now. And so he's just laying it all out about like, yeah, we almost lost our friendship over this because we were fighting about who, what to do, where and how. Uh, it, it's a really interesting insight into how this kind of an independent film production goes. I, I know it's weird for me to jump right ahead to the special feature on the specials, but <laughs> like I, I found myself... Like, right after I finished this movie, I was like, well, I'm going to listen to five seconds of it. And I watched, like, 45 minutes of the movie again just listening to it. Well, okay, so you're making me want to go back and, and listen to it with the commentary. Because <laughs> I think Gunn is very entertaining. And he is a great example of someone who went through an enormous amount of personal growth, both as a human being and as a writer, director, creator, certainly. And this is – I would love to hear him now talking about that yeah. then. That sounds great. Although, getting through this movie was not the easiest thing in the world i there is that spark of like man here's a bunch of people just doing it man they're just like fuck it we're doing it this costs no money they got some stars that are some of them are washed up some of them weren't didn't have anything at this point some of them were trying but never could quite get there but it's a decent lineup of people in it by today's standards the story is the specials are introduced as the sixth or seventh best superhero team uh they are always in trouble of keeping going but they've got a new recruit named called nightbird played by jordan ladd who brings them up after another member has departed which is weirdly never really dealt with very much um no, so really. she gets we introduce the characters by her being 
introduced to them basically she's a super fan geek and she gets to meet her her people she's been a fan of there's strobe who is the leader played by thomas hayden church strobe's wife miss ms indestructible played by paget paget brewster the weevil played by rob lowe Minuteman, played by James Gunn. Amok, played by Jamie Kennedy. Mr. Smart, played by James Jim Zulovec. Deadly Girl, played by Judy Greer. Alien Orphan, played by Sean Gunn. And Pow Power Chick, played by Kelly Cofield. And Eight, played by a whole group of people, because their thing is their one intelligence and eight different bodies. But the one notable person is John Doe, plays one of the eight in there, and often gets to be the perch talk. There's Brian Gunn, Lauren Cohn, uh, Chudy T. Uh, and a couple other people I don't I don't know who they are but anyway so uh, this ends up like you said you called it you're like this is uh, one of those 90s movies where everybody's kind of a dick and it was funny to be a dick and now it's just not very you're just like I hate all these people especially yeah. Jamie Kennedy who I guess they were like oh he's the funniest because he's the biggest dick and he's you're just like will someone please kill his character please yeah, he's he plays an ex-villain who's converted to be a hero, but what that means is that he's racist, sexist, constantly hitting on everyone. So he's Jamie Kennedy, um, <laughs> and then he's just a horrible, not even human being throughout the entire thing. Like I never laughed once at his bits. Yeah, it, this is a tough watch. It does have moments that that make it worthwhile, and like I said, it is interesting as a product of its time and a product of the people involved. And saying, "Wow, this is weird. That this movie even fucking exists." Yeah, for for anyone who hasn't seen this and is a young person who was born after the turn of the century, watch this and realize this was the best we could expect from superhero movies back in the day. Dude, yeah. Th like, this was like <laughs> super edgy superhero commentary film comedy that people, yeah. I remember people talking about this movie at the time and going, Oh man, it's so funny. You have to see it. You're like, and now I'm finally seeing it. I'm like, really? This is the movie you were excited about. But you know, t <laughs> time has a way, especially with comedy, with dulling the edges. There's, and you know what? We we needed our superhero fix. It's okay? true. We, we didn't know any better. There's a lot of bonus features here. Uh, they, so they did a really nice release of this. There's a 2000 commentary with director Craig Mazin, uh, James Gunn, producer Mark Altman, and visual, visual uh, effects supervisor <gasps> Mojo. There's a 2005 audio commentary with writer-actor James Gunn and Paget Brewster. So the bad news is, even though he had five years to look back on it, it's not the one we really would like to hear him talk about it now. So that's unfortunate. It. yeah there's but it, it's still interesting there's four and a half just, yeah i believe you i'm sure he still had enough context to go jesus what were we thinking <laughs> well it's always fun when a filmmaker is just like you know what i i don't care so i'm gonna tell you the cold hard truth yeah uh you know like, like michael bay and the writers of transformers 2 getting into a fight with each other on the commentary it's the best thing in the world uh there's four and a half minutes of deleted scenes there's a toy commercial which is uh, a gimmick that plays into the movie there's a, another thing like that that's a wedding video of the nuptials of mr and mrs strobe there's a bunch of behind the scenes photos uh so it's a good package but like i said this is a dated piece and it's not going to be for everyone just it's just not well let's go on to a little bit of Asian film. You guys know I love my Asian film. We already talked about one, Indonesia. I was confused about how to stack these things, really. But I just, you know, I try to put things next to each other that have some hey, connection. But enter the fact... What you need to do is rank them by the amount of kid death. Right? No, I've, I've, it's got to be the name of the episode, right? Rank by the amount of kid death. 
<laughs> no, this one, although the characters in here are so ridiculously capable physically that they might as well be superheroes, but that's what you get with a Donnie Yen film, and we love him for it. This is Enter the Fat Dragon that is technically on paper a remake of Sammo Hung's 1978 film with the same title, but in no other way. In fact... Oh, is it? Like I said, in no other way. Sorry. Like, no, that that makes me feel a lot better about the title itself. Because I continue, continue, please. Well, that, I, I have thoughts about the title versus the movie. That film is a satire of the Bruce Lee film *Way of the Dragon*. It was during that whole Bruce exploitation period, and that was the idea. It's like, oh, he's Bruce Lee, but if he was fat, right? Okay, nobody cares about that anymore. And this is not nobody cares about that film anymore. <laughs> and this film is just an excuse to put Donnie Yen in a fat suit, which is bizarre considering in no way, shape, or form does him wearing this fat suit or his character going from skinny and muscular and Donnie Yen, basically, to being a fat guy affect the action, affect the jokes, or affect the story. It's it okay, completely so, irrelevant. <laughs> that's kind of what I want to talk about. So, so first of all, I, I actually really liked Enter the Fat Dragon, I went into this expecting it to be nonstop fat jokes from second one to the end of the movie yeah. and was pleasantly surprised when the closest the movie ever came to a fat joke was his ex-fiance after seeing him of hitting rock bottom for six months or a year, not initially recognizing him because he had gained a lot of weight. Right. But so, I mean, he has gained like a lot of weight. So yeah. And you are right. Like, there aren't any fat jokes. It's not really a part of the story because, like, yes, he gains weight, but the dilemma he faces is really more of him being a super cop, and it's not really about his weight. And he has to come to terms. It's Jackie Chan syndrome, you know. Yeah. He, he goes too far, dude. This is um, this is a police story movie. If the 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 joke was that Jackie got upset after his girlfriend broke up with him for the hundredth billionth time, <laughs> and he got fired from the force for the hundred billionth time, and got fat. So at the end of the movie, Donnie Yen, and this is not a plot thing, don't worry. Donnie Yen, like, has a little monologue that plays over the credits where he basically says the equivalent of, look, I made this because I want people to understand that whether you're fat, thin, tall, short, it doesn't matter. Anyone can be a hero, Mm. which is a beautiful sentiment. Uh, It just feels like the people behind the marketing of the movie or maybe the editing of it didn't really understand Donnie Yen's intent in this movie. Yeah. And so like you have really great martial arts segments for a Donnie Yen semi-family film. Uh, There are bits of great humor. The characters are interesting. It's just kind of a fat joke of a poster for some reason. Yeah. No, I mean, it's if like a poster for a movie could have a sound of a tuba playing, it would be this one. You know, yeah. like the sad tuba. Which, and it's sad because, like, I, I've... So this is not the first one we've seen where Donnie Yen is starting to try to act in not just hyper-violent action movies. We had that one where he was a substitute teacher, uh, and it was like a family kung fu movie. And this feels kind of like that, where it's Donnie Yen going, okay, you know, I've made my family kung fu movie, 
and now this is more of a comedy kung fu movie or you know this is the fat guy kung fu movie like he's trying to go in and make different kinds of martial arts films for different audiences is what it feels like. Yeah. And this is definitely one of the family friendly ones. There's nothing wrong with that. So this isn't the raid or some shit, but it's got decent no. martial arts. I mean, I saw I on blu-ray.com. It made me laugh out loud because the guy was talking about all this and he goes, well, I guess they couldn't, fit on the title generic if inter intermittently enjoyable donnie yen action comedy with donnie in a fat suit because we had the rights to a famous film title <laughs> yeah yeah okay that there you go that is the movie subtitle right there <laughs> it's it's okay like i said i love donnie yen films and he's made a lot of okay ones and this is one of the well, okay it, ones but even his okay ones are better than a lot of people's best works i mean this, you know it's it's another movie that if you're a diehard fan of martial arts, man, give or take, but it's, it's a movie that I could put on for my parents and we could enjoy a martial arts I mean, movie. I'd bother telling you the plot, but it really doesn't matter. You know what you it need doesn't. to know. His girlfriend breaks up with him. He gets in trouble at work, you know, yes. and then he and, and he's, ends up, he's a super cop in a fact. Yeah, and then he ends up fighting bad, the bad guys anyway, and being a super, super ridiculously nice guy that's the that's the all you need to know about the plot if the, yeah. you know, anything else is totally uh, who cares let's just we're just waiting for donnie yen to punch somebody again uh, this is directed by wong jing who is one of the most legendary and prolific hong kong filmmakers of all time who's worked with pretty much everyone and has done some truly amazing movies with some, with pretty much every major star in Hong Kong cinema, including God of Gamblers with John Woo, which is all time legend, uh, Twinkle Twinkle Little Star with Jackie Chan, A Moment of Romance. I mean, he's been doing films steadily since the 80s, still is steadily directing and producing other films. And he's kind of known for being the guy who can make a really straightforward, badass movie, but also make some bizarre fucking decisions in his movies. He has made some <laughs> truly weird as shit movies that make you go, okay, this is where the language barrier or the culture barrier hits. It's just in Wong Jing himself. I don't understand why anyone would make the choices this guy makes sometimes. And this is another one where you're like, okay, weird call with the yeah, fat sure. suit, but whatever. <laughs> it's strange flex but go hard yeah okay cool exactly <laughs> well let's talk about another film this one comes from japan and i think is probably one of the best films we're going to talk about this week oh me too and it's yeah. called samurai marathon now this is not a re-release of anything this came out in 2019 but the story takes place in 1855 and it's actually based on a true story or at least what bits and pieces we know are true mixed well, with folklore. Um, it's based on a true story in the same way that uh, the last samurai is based on a true story. Yeah. Like technically the core events did kind of happen. Yeah. But d don't, don't, don't pretend that it has historical accuracy. Yeah, the idea being like the event of the samurai who did this marathon for 36 miles across the countryside. And for the reasons listed by the movie did in fact happen. Now all the characters and the, the subplots probably were completely made up, but that's neither here nor there. This is weirdly directed for entirely, but one Japanese cast and all in Japanese. It was directed by a British white guy, Bernard Rose, who's better known for the horror films, paper house and Candyman, and the Beethoven film, immortal beloved. <laughs> So not who yeah. and and porn. 
Um, I got really intrigued after watching this movie because we'll get into it. But uh, I was like, I'm going to go look and see what else this guy has made. And I was like, okay, I've seen Candyman. And he made a bunch of shitty straight-to-DVD porn and horror. Okay, cool, cool, cool. Well, Candyman's Never not mind. Sh- Candyman and Paper House are pretty good. But anyway. Those are. Not the rest. <laughs> so... Uh, it, the the one American in here, or not American, but English speaking person, is Danny Houston, who apparently Bernard Rose has worked with quite a number of times. They're good friends, which is why he's here. But he plays one of the real historical characters, Commander Perry, who was the British commander who was sent over here to try and connect with the Japanese, literally offering them guns. I mean, obviously, all of that uh, kind of went sideways historically. I think and he was American. Huh? He's American. Yes, sorry, you are correct. And the Japanese knew something was up. Right. They're like and here they're like, something's up. This is not good. Most of Japan was ruled by clans. And when the West arrives showing up with guns, they're like, uh, we better we better come up with a plan B here real quick, because I'm not sure I trust these guys being as nice as they're pretending to be. A samurai uh, played by Hiroki Hasegawa is the leader of the Itakura family, which is a ma- one of the major samurai families at that clans at that time. And he's worried about this he's worried about his daughter yuki played by nana komatsu who he is forcing into an arranged marriage but she's an artist and she wants to be mulan (laughs) and explore the world (laughs) Uh, meanwhile janae played by takeri sato is an accountant for the clan like superstar accountant (laughs) but he's secretly a spy for the shogun and when the leader makes his call hey i need all the samurai to show up in my kingdom i we're gonna have an event he thinks they're organizing for rebellion against the government because he doesn't know about this whole Americans showing up thing and that they that the reason this is they're all being gathered is because like, hey, we're going to throw this marathon thing. Everyone has to participate if you're under 50. And basically, we're trying to weed out the, the wheat from the chaff so we know who to put on the front lines if this whole American thing turns into a problem. Too late to find out that that was the case after his message has been sent. He's got to go out there and try and basically stop chaos from erupting there. And there's a lot of other characters who have their own reasons here. Yuki, like I said, pulls a Mulan, dresses up as a boy to compete in it. Uh, Her husband has a whole team of like, uh, of uh, lick spittles. I've never used that term in a sentence before. I'm so proud Uh, to help him cheat and win however he can. But things come to a head when eventually the Shogun's guys show up and then it's sort of like all bets, other bets are off. Let's take care of this problem. So like... This is one of my favorite historical periods in world history. Um, I've always been fascinated by when the Americans sailed the black ships up to Japan and were like, trade with us or we'll kill you, mm. um, which it, it, it drastically changed the world and uh, multiple cultures. And so I really love it when we get to see this time period adapted. I love Japanese history. Uh, I love the confluence of cultures. I adored this movie. Uh, the director who... I'm blanking on Imiwata. No, no, I told you this is uh, Bernard Rose. Yeah, thank you, Bernard Rose. Um, he does an amazing job with this. He tries to adopt some of Kurosawa's uh, and general samurai film language, and so there's lots of wide open shots of the Japanese countryside, and there's an emphasis on making sure that we feel the world they were in. Uh, this movie took my breath away, like from the very get go. Uh, and most of the characters I think really work and do, they do a good job of 
surprising you with the decisions they make. There are a few times where characters involved in the marathon go really hard about dicking over their fellow marathon runners where like like oh you just murdered some people i was not expecting that <laughs> but like the, the character you mentioned who who hired has the friends kind of help him cheat you know he spends a good chunk of the movie being this whiny smarmy little guy who's doing whatever he can to uh get ahead in life but then the moment that shit gets serious he turns into this epic god uh warrior god just killing people left and right and beheading people and he becomes one of the more interesting action hero characters and there's a fight between the spy and another spy who they discover each other having not known they existed and the way they shoot it is they hold the camera back they do it all in wides there is one single cut in the entire fight, which is just to get closer at one point when they start grappling. And it's a really tense fight where you know at any moment one of them is going to get run through. Uh, and like They handle those little moments so well. I, I loved the heck out of this movie. It may have been my favorite one that we went over this cycle. I think it's pretty great, too. It's beautifully shot, as you said. We haven't even mentioned the score, which is from the legendary Philip Glass, which I was sitting listening this going this is either philip glass or it's somebody who's really into philip glass and oh, you know it instantly yeah exactly you're like oh he has a very distinctive sort of circular style and it is it's a beautiful score and it really resonates here i mean the only part that feels weird at all is honestly danny houston being in this because you kind of feel like they should have maybe dealt with this from a distance and then had other people talk about it having just happened because it's odd. It's almost off-putting having a recognizable actor like him in this for a second. But I don't know. Whatever. A minor complaint. It, it, no, no. No, that's valid. It, it's a, So it opens with Danny Houston. And it opens with a bunch of characters speaking English and playing Yankee Doodle Dandy. <laughs> like singing the song out loud in English. And like the, it, it's this marketing pitch by the Americans to the Japanese government. Um, but it's still really weird to be like, no, we're going to watch a movie that's 99% Japanese and we're going to begin it with English and a little bit of Portuguese. Yeah. Uh, it, I at first was going, watching this movie going, man, this feels like it's taken a while, but it's not. It honestly starts ramping up relatively quickly and that bits and pieces of information you're getting about these characters and their relationships to each other really pay off as the movie goes along. And you do actually start to care about these people, find their stories interesting. This is the kind of movie you're like, wow, why hasn't this story been adapted more? And it has been adapted yeah. a few times. Uh, in fact, I believe Stephen Sondheim did a musical of it that was <laughs> one of his most amount of awards he ever won for one of his musicals, but one of his least successful musicals, uh, Pacific Overtures. There we go. Oddly, very odd. One of those <clears throat> makes me go, what? There's a Sondheim musical? I kind of want to see that now. Why isn't that a thing? I mean, I guess part of it is like people at the time were like, we don't care about the Japanese being oppressed, but. You know, yeah. oh. <laughs> stupid people from the seventies. Anyway, and I don't, I don't believe there are any special features on this no. either, which is unfortunate. Yeah, because with with it being a Japanese film in Japanese, filmed by a British director who previously made a influential American horror film, I'm kind of intrigued by the background on this. Yep. 
No, I'm I'm with you too. I would have loved to have seen some more bonus features. I think this is a fascinating little movie that I will revisit. But you know what? We are going to split up our digital noise into two digital noises, as I'm known to do, which means tomorrow or the next day, <laughs> we'll put up the second half of this digital noise for you guys. Amusement. I hope you're enjoying this so far. Please use those links to click on for the to buy those from Amazon and whatever else you get from Amazon. We really appreciate it. God knows we could use the money over here. Thank you to my co-host, Aaron. Welcome. Hello. <laughs> You'll hear more from on the next one, almost immediately. Uh, ooh, ooh. Thanks. <laughs>